At Emory University's Guizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. In an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Guizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Guizueta Business School and your host. Today I'll be joined by Brian Goebel and Sonia Sharma. We'll discuss climate change and business, including the enormous influence and responsibility business leaders, investors, and regulators hold in driving toward a more climate-smart world. Despite huge hurdles, we are seeing traction in the climate space. In his 2020 letter, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink turned heads when he asserted that climate risk is investment risk. In 2021, money held in ESG and other sustainability-focused funds rose globally by 53% to $2.7 trillion. This past March, the SEC proposed new requirements for publicly traded companies to report detailed information on greenhouse gas emissions and risks related to climate change. Suffice it to say, climate change is and should be front and center as a key business issue for a diverse set of stakeholders across all sectors, including leaders, investors, and regulators. Brian is the managing director of Guizueta's Business and Society Institute. Through the Institute, students, staff, faculty, and partners focus on addressing complex challenges confronting people, the planet, and the business community. Sonia is a second-year MBA student at Guizueta Business School. She's also a social enterprise student fellow and future consultant at McKinsey. She recently attended the Climate Cat Global Summit along with hundreds of leading MBA students across the nation to dig in on these issues. Brian, Sonia, thank you for being here today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to have this conversation. Great. Well, let's kick off. So climate change, sustainability, ESG, and other similar terms are often used interchangeably, despite not actually meaning the same thing. Can you help explain some of the nuances between these terms and how they're different? Yeah, I'd be happy to jump in uh, on that. I think there's a lot of intersectionality, obviously, uh, in this work when we talk about you know, building a climate smart uh, economy, but also all of the uh, connections to, you know, the science behind climate change, the economic issues, political issues, um, and then frankly, all the, the human-centered justice concepts. So when I look at it, I look, look to the United Nations a lot. So climate change, I think for me, is, is really about the consequences of our human activity. So if you look back in 1992, the United Nations uh, had a framework convention on climate change, and they defined climate change really just, just more in the scientific realm, right? You know, meaning the, the change of climate, which is attributed directly or indirectly to human activity. Um, and that, that human activity, you know, has altered the composition of our global atmosphere, which in addition to some of the natural climate variability observed, you know, is, is creating that accelerated change. And so, you know, that can be found in the carbon in our, in our environment, but also a lot of those temperature uh, switches that we know today. Um, sustainability, I think, is is more of kind of a, an approach or a way of thinking. And if you look at it, it's really how do we integrate, you know, our future generations into our decisions today. So uh, 
1987, the United Nations actually came together to talk about and define sustainability. And I, I always like this definition because I think it, it brings in a lot of the, the human-centric elements of justice to it as well. Their definition is simply you know, that sustainability is meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So I know in our conversations around climate justice, we talk a lot about you know, the business issues and responsibilities, but you know, how do we meet the demands of today but without compromising you know, our future generations? And then the last area, um, ESG, which uh, stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, um, is really, I think, a tactic or tool um, that is involved in, in both investing and then business operational strategy that essentially helps organizations organize and prioritize to, to make a positive impact on planet and people. So from the environmental perspective, obviously, there's a direct tie to climate. Like, What kind of impact does a company have on the environment? So this is all about your carbon footprint the kind of um, you know, supply chain impacts uh, on the environment you may have, and then the after effects, obviously, of where does your product kind of go after its use. Uh, social is a, a huge area of focus. Um, it, it does involve uh, the diversity, equity, inclusion uh, topics that are so popular today and companies uh, really focusing on. So how do you improve your social impact within your company and your broader community? How do you look at issues of, of equity, both in your company and out in the community? And then the last one is, is really important around governance. Um, and governance really comes down to, you know, how does your company, it, its board, its, its key directors, you know, make decisions? How, how, how do they hold themselves to account? Great, great. That provides a, a really nice baseline. So can you help explain what climate justice is and how climate work can be centered around justice? Yes, you know, when we're looking at that uh, issue, justice is, is, is obviously a really important part of it and often not something, you know, talked about um, when it comes to some of the business decisions, but, but critically important. So um, Dr. Adrian Hollis is a, a fantastic voice in this space. Uh, she's a senior climate justice and health scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And you know she's coined this phrase that you know, minority communities are harmed worst and first when it comes to the impact of climate and climate change, uh, both you know globally, but but also here in the United States. There's a couple of things that that come to mind when it comes to climate justice. And I think number one is breaking out of kind of a business mentality that only involves decarbonization. Your carbon footprint is of critical importance to your strategy as a business leader, but the best companies. Um, really start to more intentionally bring in the climate justice lens by looking you know, beyond their carbon footprint to what is the very real impacts of their business decision on people. So at, at worst, you want to uh, do no harm, but at best, you want to obviously uh, mitigate and be very proactive around your justice activities. And so climate justice means advancing climate solutions that are linked uh, to human rights um, and, and really bring a human-centered approach to your work. And that means you know, lifting the voices and leadership of those that are most impacted by climate um, to the forefront. I think the other area of climate justice that there is a, a lot of uh, hope, but also tension around is actually the form of, of payment for loss and damage. Obviously, as Dr. Hollis has talked about, the worst and first impacts have, have, have occurred to, you know, in, my, in minority communities across the world and, and a lot of the lower income countries as well. And so, both as part of the Paris Agreement conversation and the most recent discussions in Scotland this summer, 
All countries have agreed in principle to this concept of loss and damage associated with climate change impacts. However, there is a, a, a lot of disagreement and resistance when it comes to how do you implement that. With recent emphasis on climate change, there is a real risk of widespread greenwashing. Can you explain what greenwashing is, where we as consumers might see it, and how we can combat this? So greenwashing is a form of deception. It's when companies spend time, money, and resources marketing its products, aims, and policies as environmentally conscious, when in reality, they aren't doing anything to actually minimize their environmental impact. Um, an example of this is Starbucks releasing its strawless lid in 2018 as part of its sustainability drive. However, this lid contained more plastic than the old lid and straw combined. Um, in fact, Nestle also released a statement saying to have 100% recyclable packaging by 2025, but Greenpeace called the company out for having no plan in place to make that promise a reality. Um, and to really get to the combating this part of the question, I'll kind of present it from two sides. You as a consumer can try to verify by doing some independent research. A notorious example of greenwashing is the announcement of a lofty net zero goal. Our company X promised to go completely carbon neutral by 2030. Um, well, what are they doing exactly? Is it just a pretty website page or is there a timeline with feasible actions and targets, uh, consistent updates to track their progress, mindful intrinsic changes that are producing favorable results? It's really all about becoming the Sherlock to verify the company is genuine in its intentions and really call companies out when they are greenwashing. Um, and so now that we talked about the consumer side, another thing is just companies in general. So for companies to combat this, just don't pay lip service to a problem as serious as climate change. Um, be better about holding yourself accountable by tracking and publishing your metrics. Really deceiving customers can only get you so far because as companies with a genuine agenda start getting ahead of you, you'll regret wasting those resources on a short-term win when it really could have been a long-term triumph and competitive advantage. So Sonia's talked a little bit about this, Brian, but greenwashing really reflects a broader accountability challenge for companies and governments. Let's talk about some of these sorts of challenges and potential solutions. Yeah, I mean, Sonia, uh, uh, you know, made made that case very clear. Um, and you know, the the trend right now is obviously, as a company, you know, setting a, a date not too far in the distant future to achieve net zero emission targets. And in fact, 20 percent uh, of the world's two thousand largest publicly listed companies have announced that public commitment over the last few years. So the, the question is, you know, how do you hold yourself a, a, to account to actually make the necessary changes to get you there? And I, I do think transparency is, is a real critical part of that. So it's not just good enough to have a website and, and kind of speak to your commitments, but having a, a third party um, look at you every a couple of years to you know, publicly put information and, and have a score when it comes to not only climate, but how you treat other very important stakeholders. So I think third-party verification will be really critical as well. So you're talking, Brian, about the importance of third-party intervention at times. So have you seen that come into play at all? Yeah, you know, and I think we talked about ESG as a really important uh, tactic and vehicle around uh, climate and obviously it's a huge growing area, but at the same time that, that per 
you know, presents opportunities for different funds to 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 maybe pose as ESG when they're when they're not truly ESG. And so, as 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 part of any any market when it comes to investing, having third party organizations that can audit and verify is really important. So, in the world of ESG, uh, Morningstar. Uh, plays that really important role, right? They have analysts that are looking at funds, assessing risk, but also uh, assessing the authenticity of an ESG uh, labeled fund. And so recently, uh, Morningstar has has come out and actually, you know, through some of their their research, has uh, come across about one trillion dollars in ESG assets that they they felt. Um, wasn't living up to appropriately being tagged in ESG fund. And so Morningstar has actually removed um, that tag from over 1,200 funds that represent $1 trillion in assets. And there's a commonly held misconception within many companies and investors that making climate conscious decisions or related investments means higher costs. Can you share how climate-related changes actually represent growth opportunities for companies? Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, as a as an institute, we we really look at climate, you know, in four different areas. And the first is a, as a growth opportunity. Um, secondly, a justice issue. A third, a leadership imperative. And fourth, an accountability challenge. So we're kind of hitting all of our marks there, but. Uh, the growth opportunity, I think, is is really clear, and and so uh, MBA Edge, which is a, a great resource developed by our friends over at Duke that helped to found the Climate Cap Conference that uh, Sonia and seventeen of her classmates went to, you know, has a lot of this great information. They have a a great report called Climate Change in Business: What Every MBA Student Needs to Know Today, and and some of the facts in there I think really speak to that growth opportunity. And so they looked at. You know, 225 of the world's 500 biggest companies, and estimated that climate-related opportunities represent you know a financial impact totaling over 2.1 trillion dollars. So it is you know one of these um, very few times when we we talk about in a, a truly innovative transition in our economy. Um, you know, there's not every day we talk about 2.1 million uh, trillion, I, I should say, in in growth opportunities. So um, I think that's really clear because it's across all of the sectors. I, I do think it's it's pretty unique as as we we think about it from all the consumer you know goods companies to how we travel and transportation to the agricultural sector and and food. It impacts you know everything, and so I think that's what really makes us a unique opportunity. So companies like General Motors, right, been around for a very long time, were successful for a long part of its its journey as a company, but ran into you know challenges and, and struggles uh, this century, and now is reinventing itself with uh, electric vehicles, with different forms of uh, mobility when it comes to transit. So I look at those kind of companies as you know old companies that can really reinvent and and um, create new chapters because of their their commitment. And that commitment is is in the form of investment. It does have some costs, but obviously the upside is uh, is there, and um, you know the company is attracting a lot of you know new interest and new investment because of it. There's also tons of startups that are innovating to address climate-related issues, both in the B2B and B2C space. Are there any companies, new or old, that stick out to you? The ones that really interested me because I'm going into consulting um, were the companies where <clears throat> it wasn't necessarily that someone is the CSO 
going for a CSO of a company, or there was an organization in particular that was um, you know, focused on climate change, mm-hmm. but really taking on a role within a company um, and then driving their passion for climate change within that role. Mm-hmm. So for example, we got to um, speak with um, someone from Apple who was in their supply chain practice. And she told me how she was always passionate about climate change, but she couldn't get a role specifically in that space. But now as a supply chain leader, she is able to you know, create relationships with suppliers who are mindful about keeping the environment safe. Um, And by creating these robust relationships, she's able to forward Apple's agenda within that realm. So I think that was the most striking thing to me from Climate Cap and the organizations that we interacted with is that it's really not just the nonprofits who are focused within that space. You could be anyone in any um, role at any company and really make a difference. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, and you know some others that that come to mind, and and, and some of them right home in the in the state of Georgia. Um, obviously, Georgia is very well known for its its flooring and carpet industry. You know that's that's been around a long time, and I, I think that industry, you know, um, has been frankly notorious in terms of some of its negative uh, climate impacts. But uh, you know, we are also home to Interface, which made a very intentional decision uh, around uh, around climate and climate issues and environment you know years ago um, and they continue to double down I think interface would be one of those that I, w- I would look at as early you know to climate and climate issues and prioritizing it um, not just because it's the right thing to do but it it is a very smart business decision and interface as as now moving forward with carpeting and flooring that actually um, is is carbon negative it will actually you know, trap carbon and uh, store it um, in flooring, you know, tiles. So I think that's a really exciting piece. Um, if you look at it, what we eat and and how we consume proteins is a really, really critical part of this kind of broader transition. So thinking of companies like Beyond Meat um, that are not only, you know, available for us at our, our, you know, supermarkets, but are getting into the supply chain of various, you know, quick service companies that move a high volume of, of protein. So moving from animal-based proteins to plant-based proteins, that is becoming more the norm, I think is important. And then just looking at some of those, uh, you know, B corporations um, that are, are really, you know, invested in the environment, but also really getting more focused on their role in the circular economy. So what is the the life of their products and how do they make sure that it lasts a long time and when you do, you know, choose not to use that product anymore, how does it, you know, move forward and, and be used by somebody else? Well let's talk about the SEC. They recently issued a five hundred plus page proposal that would require publicly traded companies to make comprehensive disclosures about their carbon emissions, including data from their suppliers and customers. Do you think this type of regulation will be productive to move the economy forward toward climate goals? Or should companies be left to their own devices and or incentivized to change by customers? In my opinion, the role of the government and regulatory bodies are the catalyst and not the answer. So to address your question, we 100% need intervention in the form of mandatory disclosures, policy changes that 
incentivize climate conscious practices, sanctions for noncompliance, and a huge one is standardizing reporting frameworks with meaningful measures, which I think the SEC is trying to move towards um, with the issue of this March 2022 proposal. Um, but com companies cannot just wait around for that process to build out. Autonomous corporate action is crucial. Um, I think a company that is a leader in doing this is Patagonia, where the sustainability agenda is coded into its DNA. When I went to the Climate Cap Conference, we had the pleasure of hearing from the head of strategy at Patagonia, Andy Fletcher, who told us about the company's environmental profit and losses statement, which calculates the carbon, water, and waste costs of every item sold. Um, these are the most important metrics for the company, and this report was not forced upon them by any regulations. It was really self-inflicted to hold themselves accountable on their climate goals. So we need more companies like that to pave the way for others to follow, even when regulations are falling behind. Yeah, and you know, I, I think you know the SEC is 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 there, um, and you know the their mission is is to obviously uh, allow all investors to be informed appropriately of risk, right? And so I I do think, you know, as as Larry Fink has spoken, you know, as a as a major institutional investor, you know, the risk of climate is real. So I I do think it's 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 something that the SEC really sees as as core to its mission as institutions um, and pension funds and you know individuals investors look at publicly traded companies. I think this is a fair risk to to be considered. It will it will help um, those feel good uh, about you know the company that they're investing in and and how they're positioned when it comes to climate. Let's talk a little bit about the future of the workplace. Each year, roughly 200,000 MBA students graduate and enter the workforce. Can newly minted MBAs with a focus on climate make a difference in their companies? Yeah, it's just been really interesting to, to see, you know, the interest of our MBA students and undergrad, you know, community as well in climate. And, and I think what people are understanding is just that intersectionality. Of, of climate and climate solution and roles within companies. In fact, I think a, a few years ago, some of our alums found it very rare to find these sustainability jobs right out of school. Um, but those functions were really small and trying to find their way actually, you know, five, 10 years ago. And I think what we're seeing now is just so much of the, the climate work is actually integrated and embedded across all of you know those kind of core functions and 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 all those management kind of general skills so whether you're in the marketing department in the finance function in supply chain ops and and kind of everything in between there there is a role for you on climate well it sounds too like it's something that students many students are demanding so if you're on the forefront of this it could be a really great way to attract some of the best and brightest minds when I went through the recruitment process, it was very crucial for me to see who the leaders in the company were and what were they putting out into the universe. You know, because when you're positive, when you focus on having a positive impact, it's really sewn within the fabric of your company, and it also affects work-life culture. So I think that if they, if you want to attract really great talent, it's really imperative to you to also kind of focus on this positive impact piece. Well. Brian, you have an interesting background. You started your career in consulting and shifted to higher ed a few years back. Can you tell us about the work that the Business and Society Institute Aquisweta does and what attracted you to want to take part? 
think what I'm most excited about is the unique approach our Business Insight Institute takes of you know, doing research um, and having tenured faculty really answer really tough, important questions um, when it comes to issues around climate, issues of equity, issues of economic empowerment. Um, because that research really, really matters because so so much policy and additional kind of management practices are built on those. And the yes and piece, doing that research alone, I, I think doesn't really lead to the, you know, our mission of of tackling those complex challenges, confronting people, planet and and businesses if we don't leverage some of the, you know, some of what we learn there in the classroom. And so working with Sonia and so many of her classmates and you know, preparing them to, I think, really be principled, effective leaders that, you know, can be change makers no matter their industry is really important to us. So what gives each of you hope for the future? So the first one is that companies are finally realizing that financial success and having a sustainability agenda are not mutually exclusive. Uh, for example, the Inland Empire Energy Center in California, which is a fossil fuel power plant, um, is being demolished years ahead of schedule because it cannot compete economically with electricity generated from wind and solar. So this really paves the way for renewable energy sources, um, which have become vastly more efficient and productive in the last decade. In fact, wind energy prices have fallen 70%, and solar has fallen about 90% on average in the United States. And then globally, the cost of solar has fallen 99% in 40 years. So you see that solar is now cost competitive with fossil fuel energy um, without government subsidies. And this is just talking about the energy industry you know, we can talk about more. Um, so, and then the second thing is innovation. So with more renewables on the electricity grid, electric vehicles have taken off, as we've all seen. So the biggest greenhouse gas emitters like China and India, along with Canada and France, have announced plans to phase out gas engines by 2040. And this also goes hand in hand because infrastructure is also being built to keep up with this innovation. For example, the U.S.'s Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act has allocated $7.5 billion to build out a national network of electrical uh, vehicles charging stations across the country. And then electric vehicles have paved the way for public electric transport and electric trucks, as well as cheap energy storage. Um, and I'm not very well versed on this topic, but I know regenerative agriculture and the innovation in that space has also been booming. Um, so yeah, those are my two. And then the last one I really want to end on is the people. Um, I can definitely speak to my experience at Goizbara. So GBSI is a great example of this. Um, one of my favorite things that I'm a part of at Goizbara has to be the fellowship that I'm doing with GBSI. Um, the amazing climate-focused programming that comes from GBSI and its affiliated clubs and also the community, um, the events attract are really inspiring. I have loved learning from and alongside my peers at Goizbara. Um, these interactions and experiences really give me hope for a, a really bright future. Oh, that's great. What about you, Brian? Do you have some hope? Yeah, I mean, number one is, you know, Sonia and her, her peers. Um, I, I, I think at the, the end of the day, you know, the, the work we do in higher education is, you know, to educate and, uh, you know, ex expose that next generation of leaders to, you know, some of the challenges, some of some of the, I guess, approaches. Um, but most importantly, you know, just 
provide them, you know, with the the skills and connection to actually, you know, innovate and 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 be those change making leaders. And so, whether that's you know a mix of the classroom experiences, the communities of of peers, like our fellows, and I think that's the secret to our success. It's not the programming; it's just connecting Sonia with more and more uh, peers like herself to you know, debate these topics to uh, push one another and then frankly, be each other's network and support as they become courageous leaders because being a courageous leader is going to be lonely sometimes. And so hopefully we create that network uh, there. But just seeing the the true authentic interest um, in, in commitment um, of our, our students to being, you know, positive change makers in this space, um, I think says a lot and gives me great hope. So I think kind of starting there um, with that generation of leaders that we see is 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 really an area of hope for me, um, and then combined with that, I think is is really the the commitment companies are making. I know we were a little critical of some of those commitments. We want to see those commitments pay it off. We want to see transparency. But I think step one is, you know, making that commitment to um, to become net zero. And so seeing you know twenty percent of the largest companies in the world you know sign on, uh, I think is important first step. And so that gives me a great hope as well seeing the money that will help fuel these innovations and you know changes for these companies to get to net zero um, is really important and hand in hand the the growth of a lot of the startups that will help innovate so as we as we think about esg and and the growth of those 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 funds i think is is really important and then you know lastly i think it's it's really um alongside all of these trends is is frankly probably the most important the growth um and commitment everyone has around these justice and equity movements that are supporting and challenging, I think, um, all the work that is done when it comes to not just your carbon footprint, but how are you really, you know, putting justice in the justice lens in everything you do. And so excited about the work that Partnership for Southern Equity is doing right here in our city um, with a lot of, I think, the, the companies that are, you know, committed to, to climate and climate change. Um, so I, I think kind of seeing all those things come to come together, that next generation of leaders, companies that are truly making commitments, you know, investment in innovation and startups, you know, uh, growing and uh, succeeding in this space. And then that justice and equity piece being being integrated fully is is areas of great hope and um, look forward to, to what results. Brian Goebel and Sonia Sharma join today to discuss climate change in business, including the enormous influence and responsibility business leaders, investors, and regulators hold in driving toward a more climate-smart world. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. It was fun. That was excellent. Look forward to uh, future conversations. For more information about the Guizueta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast.